0: The division between Sunni and Shia Islam has yet again become sadly topical in recent weeks. In Iraq, the ISIS forces, usually described as Sunni insurgents, have overrun large areas of the country, putting the Shia-led government in a precarious position. The ongoing civil war in Syria also has a strong sectarian element, with regional powers throwing their weight behind one side or the other along Sunni or Shia lines. And in Pakistan, sectarian attacks happen so often that they barely make international headlines anymore. With all that, it's easy for outsiders to forget that in terms of history and practice, Sunni and Shia Islam have a great deal in common, far more than separates them. I'm Christina Pommert, and for this edition of Things Unseen, I've gone in search of a Shia perspective on how the division between the two main branches of Islam began when the Prophet Muhammad died, and how deep the religious differences are today. When I met Muhammad al-Hilli, a Shia lecturer and researcher, I began by asking him what provision the Prophet Muhammad himself made for his succession in his own lifetime.
1: Well, according to some historical records, the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him and his family certainly wanted to ensure that the teachings that he brought forward for the Muslims are carried and are delivered and continuously people find someone to seek leadership and guidance. Now, according to Shia faith, the historical records point to the superiority of the cousin of Prophet Muhammad by the name of Imam Ali, peace be upon him, as far as his knowledge, as far as his steadfastness and um, his proximity to the Prophet himself. Not only was he the Prophet's son-in-law by marrying his daughter Fatima, but he was the chosen amongst his companions in many different ways. Different places and traditions where the responsibility was given to him to lead the Muslims in the absence of the Prophet especially at one instance in the year nine after the migration of the Prophet when the Prophet had to go towards a particular battle and he left Ali in charge in the city of Medina which was the headquarters of the Islamic government at that time.
0: And I believe there was also an incident where the Prophet Muhammad publicly said to his followers that Ali was supposed to succeed him.
1: The incident that is widely disputed and a cause of dissension amongst Muslims of different denominations is called the Incident of Ghadir. Now the Incident of Ghadir is reported to have happened on the tenth year after the migration of the Prophet, a few months before he passed away, and the traditions, tell us that he instructed over 120,000 Muslims to congregate in an area called Ghadir. And he called for Ali, to come next to him, lifted his hands and said, whomsoever I have authority over, then Ali would definitely enjoy that authority. And of course, Muslims congratulated Ali, peace be upon him. And it was recognized as the appointment of the successor of the prophet. And this is of course, an argument that the Shi'as present and they supplement this with verses on the Quran, specifically chapter five verse number three where the command of God is to the prophet that you have to declare what God has commanded you to do so. And if you do not, all of your message is nullified. Now, the argument that the Shias have is this message must have been so important and delicate that the entire 23 years of propagation of the prophet must be resting on this particular announcement. And hence the argument is it must be to do with leadership. It has to be to do with succession. And the The argument is, of course, to present the proof that God, the Almighty, had instructed the prophet to do this in order for the Muslims to have the correct leadership and the right guidance. But as far as the followers of the Sunni sect is concerned, their argument is, and the majority of the scholars would not dispute the occurrence of this incident because over 300 different sources narrated. it, they say that the word that was used by the Prophet indicates friendship because the word in Arabic is known as Mawla and it has 19 different meanings. And one of the meanings is that somebody is considered a friend. So what they say is that the Prophet announced to the Muslims 123 thousands of them, that Ali was his friend and he was close to him. And in fact, he did not leave a successor. And his successor was chosen amongst a group of companions after the death of the prophet.
0: So while Ali and the family were looking after the funeral of the prophet, the succession was settled amongst other people. Where did that leave Ali therefore?
1: All Muslims are in absolute agreement that the family of the Prophet, namely Ali, his daughter Fatima, some of the companions, were engaged and busy with the rituals after the sad demise of the Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, and his holy progeny. Whereas other companions, prominent ones, wanted to establish the whole concept of caliphate, khilafat, the uh, successorship or the ruling of the Muslims after the Prophet. And so they met and uh, they chose, of course, the first Caliph Abu Bakr. Yet the argument of the Shias is that at least this should have happened, if at all it should have happened, after the whole rituals would have ended, of the washing and the shrouding of the body and the funeral process and the mourning time. And of course, so many thousands of Muslims had witnessed the famous declaration of the Prophet in Ghadir a few months earlier. Therefore, the argument is that it was a form of conspiracy to deprive the family of the Prophet, namely Ali, from leading the Muslims and uh, from performing what... God the Almighty had instructed the Prophet to do.
0: So Ali did become eventually the fourth caliph of the Muslims, but that did not mean an end to the rivalries within the growing Muslim community. What happened to Ali eventually?
1: When Imam Ali, peace be upon him, eventually became a caliph, the consensus of the Muslims at that time after the death of the third Caliph Uthman, he wanted to re-establish the teachings of the Prophet because some of the teachings of the Prophet had now been distorted and this is an agreement amongst scholars in that the majority of the Sunni followers believe that the Caliphs have the ability to somewhat change some of the teachings of the religion of Islam that the Prophet himself had brought forward and they have this authority, whereas Shia followers say no, the authority lies with the Prophet and the Imams carry forward the teachings and spread it and they have no position to change Islamic law. If the Prophet had said something is forbidden, then they would not change that. What Imam Ali of course wanted to ensure is to bring back the teachings of Islam according to how the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his holy progeny had presented. And of course, the five years that he was ruling were in a way difficult because there was extensive efforts to try and undermine him. People understood that he was the most knowledgeable, people recognized that he was the closest to the Holy Prophet, yet because he wanted to establish justice, he wanted equal rights for different groups, and he indeed abolished nepotism and favoring of family and so on, he had to deal with a great deal of enemies, a number of enemies such as Muawiyah, who had wanted to establish his own rule and authority in uh, Sham, modern-day Syria, and confronted Ali in a famous battle. He also had to deal with internal conflict by some individuals at the same time.
0: And Ali was eventually assassinated by a rival, is that right?
1: What happened was that there emerged a group amongst the Muslims known as the Karajites. Now, the Karajites were somewhat shallow and superficial in their understanding of the religion of Islam. And they adhered to extremist interpretation of the teachings of the faith. And so what happened was they looked at Ali and they looked at Muawiyah and said, both are not ruling according to God's law. And so they legislated the killings of both individuals. Ali was killed by a Karajite, who had waited for him in a mosque of the city of Kufa in modern-day Iraq, and it struck him before the commencement of morning prayers. And Imam Ali, peace be upon him, had actually fought these people in a battle a few months before his eventual assassination, so to speak. And it was a group that he had to confront because they were trying to distort the teachings of the Prophet and essentially were an element of discord and disunity amongst the Muslim ummah at that time.
0: His son Hassan, so the Prophet's grandson, then took over, but the rival claims continued and Hassan eventually gave up the caliphate in order to keep the peace within the Muslim community. Hassan's younger brother Hussein later tried to reclaim the caliphate and that led to perhaps the seminal event in Shia history, which is often mentioned and very much remembered the Battle of Karbala, which is now in Iraq, of course. Can you tell us what happened at Karbala from the Shia point of view?
1: Too often when people discuss Sunni Shia schisms or the breakups and the diversion between the different sects in the religion of Islam, they refer to the event of Karbala, which happened 61 years after the migration of the Prophet. Now there was the grandson of the Prophet known as Hussein, who is the son of Imam Ali. He's the son of the daughter of the Prophet, Fatima, and he was widely recognized as a just individual, as a courageous man, as an individual who had the greatest knowledge around that time and very much respected. But of course, there was a tyrant. The tyrant's name was Yazid. And he was ruling ruthlessly, he was uh, killing indiscriminately. Indeed, he had hijacked the rulership of the Muslims and uh, wanted to establish his own laws and widely practice bribery and imprisoning his opponents. Now Hussein, of course, recognized the danger that the religion of Islam faced and therefore would not give allegiance to this man Yazid and therefore he rallied people in order to stand and rise against this oppression and he recognized that without this movement and this uprising the religion of Islam would be in danger of complete obliteration by the ruling government so to speak at that time headed by Yazid. Now what he did was he gathered a group of people And he marched after being invited by the people of Kufa, modern day Iraq, so that they will join him and they will rise against this particular tyranny. When he got to a place known as Karbala, Yazid had already sent an army of 30,000 soldiers who had surrounded him, deprived him and his family from water and any kind of nourishment. And then he and his family and his companions were mercilessly killed and butchered, including his six-month-old child. And his daughters and his sisters his wives were taken as captives alongside his son and were paraded as one of the worst forms of captive justice around different cities in order to humiliate them. Essentially, the sacrifice of Imam Hussein is something that is commemorated around the world today. In specifically Shia centers, as well as others, they recall the sacrifices and the lessons and the values that are universal in nature. In fact, if you look at Karbala, you'll see the role of women rising because the sister of Imam Hussein, by the name of Zainab, she actually led the uprising and continued the revolt after the martyrdom of Hussein. So she would stand bravely and challenge the authority of Yazid by delivering a very famous sermon in his court. And generally his teachings live on today because it appeals to the hearts of many people, Muslims and non-Muslims, who would like to seek a role model in their struggle against injustice and oppression and tyranny. So Hussein's message has lived on. And Mahatma Gandhi famously said, I learned from Hussein how to be victorious at the same time being oppressed and others Charles Dickens and many famous historians and commentators have written about the personality of Hussein the son of Ali and how his movement really was an awakening call for Muslims to kind of stand up against any form of injustice.
0: Remembering the events of Karbala is very much at the heart of Shia spirituality, not just folk spirituality, but it is just very, very prominent in the way that Shias look upon their faith and its history. Can you describe for me a little what happens during the month of Muharram when these events are particularly remembered?
1: The first 10 days of the month of Muharram are normally commemorated as the days in which people congregate, in the centers, Shia centers across the world, and a sermon is presented whereby lessons are drawn from the life of Imam Hussein, peace be upon him, as well as, of course, the Prophet and his family and some prominent companions. It is a great chance for people to congregate and learn about their faith. And at the same time, recalling the emotional aspect which touches the heart of many people when they understand what actually happened on the sand dunes in Karbala on a hot day. It is referred to as the day of the 10th of Muharram, known as Ashura, and how... There was this ultimate form of sacrifice that people can relate to. So there's a recalling of the tragedy itself. Then there's also some kind of mourning and people shed their tears and they cry and they express their sadness in different shapes and forms. But ultimately, the message is quite clear. It needs to be something that helps and positively changes the lives of human beings. So it's a transformational process. The goal of it is to move communities and individuals forward by learning from the examples of others and applying it to their own lives.
0: Now, aspects which many Sunnis find a little hard to stomach are public displays of, for example, people beating themselves with chains or even injuring themselves with knives in the process. Can you tell me what the significance of that is?
1: Of course, we have uh, some form of uh, self-flagellation within Christianity. The language of honoring and revering certain individuals sometimes has no bounds as far as the expression of emotion and love is concerned. However, according to the majority of the scholars within the Shia faith and the Shia sect, the harming of one's own body is not permissible, and certainly the Practices that we see, unfortunately, sometimes widely publicized in the media are only displayed by a small number within the Shia world. The vast majority of the followers of the family of the Prophet, known as the Shia, the followers, express their love and their commitment and their loyalty towards Imam Hussein and the sacrifices he stood out for by weeping, by crying, by a simple beating of the chests, essentially.
0: Generally speaking, the Ahlul Bayt, the Prophet Muhammad and his offspring, so that's his daughter Fatima, his cousin and son-in-law Ali, and the grandsons Hassan and Hussein, do play a particularly important role for Shia Muslims. Can you explain to me how they are seen and how that manifests itself in the practice of the faith?
1: The Ahlul Bayt are the family of the Prophet, specifically those whom the Qur'an itself has praised as well as authentic tradition from the Prophet emphasizing the love of the Ahl al-Bayt and hence when it comes to their respect and their love all Muslims share this Sunni and Shia yet the difference of course comes as far as following them the Shias consider one aspect of the love that the Quran speaks about is to look at their lives and seek them as authorities after the Prophet who understood Islam better than anyone else of course, after the Prophet, starting from Ali, Fatima, Hassan and Hussein, And thereafter, nine of the descendants and the progeny of Hussein, known as the Imams, all together, the family of the Prophet or the Ahl al-Bayt are 14 individuals, including the Prophet himself, who were designated and chosen by God the Almighty and given knowledge and given protection and many virtues. And indeed, they were the best of people in their time, and they enjoyed the respect of the people. Indeed, what the Shias belief is that they were chosen by God the Almighty to lead mankind and that's why they faced the wrath of some of the rulers, Umayyad and Abbasid rulers, who were caliphs that led the Muslims. They were all killed, imprisoned, their families taken, and their rights were, of course, taken away from them as well. So without doubt, they are honored and respected, but the main difference is whether they should be considered as leaders and whether one's life should be focused around theirs.
0: Now, Sunnis and Shias, despite these differences in how they see their early history, have a lot in common. There are a lot of beliefs which are in common, and we're not going to go into all those now, but there are a few differences in practice, for example, with regard to prayer. Can you tell me what they are?
1: One thing is very important for us to clarify. A lot of people, unfortunately, have misunderstood the differences between Sunni and Shia and why they have arisen. In a nutshell, the Sunnis believe that the teachings of the Quran and the Prophet are taken from the companions and those who followed the companions, known as a tabi'un. The Shias say no The way we take how Islam should be practiced, our prayers, our fasting, our pilgrimage, is from the family of the Prophet who are closest to the Prophet, and the Quran honors them and respects them. And that's why we find differences in terms of the application of Islamic law in people's lives between Sunnis and Shias. For instance, when it comes to marriage and divorce, when it comes to the method of performing their prayers the Shiites say that the Prophet used to pray on clay or onto the ground nothing which is woven or can be eaten so they would not pray on a carpet and when asked how do you know the reply is well from this particular Imam from the family of the Prophet from Ali from the Prophet that this was indeed so the chain is different. The chain of narrators and the sources of legislation between Sunni and Shias are very different. And hence you'll find that in terms of practices, there is a scope of difference there.
0: Some Sunnis accuse Shias of only praying three times a day. That's not quite how it is, is it?
1: No, of course, Shias pray five times a day. However, sources do point to the fact that the Prophet used to combine midday prayers and afternoon prayers as well as early evening prayers and night prayers together with no particular reason, no traveling, no rain, no illness, And yes, according to Shia traditions, the prayers are five, but the midday and the afternoon are prayed one after the other. And likewise for the evening prayers. And again, the difference comes as to where do we get this information from. Because we have different sources, we derive different conclusions.
0: One thing that, again, Sunnis often complain about is the idea that Shias during prayer time or during certain um, devotional practices curse the caliphs. Is that right?
1: It's not right at all. I think it's a misconception that needs to be dispelled. One thing that I must say is that there's widespread ignorance about the practices and the beliefs of Shias. And when it comes to dealing with relationships between Shias and Sunnis around the world, there's a need to dispel these myths and to come together in understanding each other's beliefs and practices. Of course, within both Shias and Sunnis, there exists extremist elements. They would like the Shias and Sunnis never to come together. They would like each other to shed their blood and they would never want some form of Islamic unity. Now, one thing is absolutely clear. Today, the majority of our scholars, Shia, Marja's grand authorities, have issued decrees and have instructed their followers that as far as companions who are respected, revered and honored and followed by Muslims, specifically our Sunni brothers and sisters, then they must not be cursed and they must not be spoken about ill, definitely in the wider public arena. And there needs to be this type of understanding that exists between the different denominations. Unfortunately, some small groups have hijacked each particular faith and have tried to cause this dissension and add fuel to fire in a lot of cases.
0: For outsiders or people who observe Sunnis and Shias in their respective practices, it can easily seem as though the main difference is actually in The extent of emotion that is brought into it. Shias get very emotional about Ali, about Hussein, about Fatima and what happened to them. And that is expressed through crying, through grief. Sunnis don't go in for that kind of thing and are in some cases a bit suspicious of it. Would you agree that there's just a difference in how the faith is expressed?
1: We believe God has created all different and there is no problem in diversity. Coming together in a cohesive state a community which is based on love and tolerance doesn't mean that we compromise our beliefs and our practices. It simply means we extend a hand to each other in mutual cooperation and understanding each other's faiths but at the same time respecting each other, honoring each other, recognizing each other, not issuing decrees saying well you can kill this number of Shias or this number of Sunnis and so on and so forth. Too often misjudgments, bias, prejudice take precedent when it comes to sunni shia relationships i recall that specifically here in the united kingdom large number of our Sunni brothers sometimes shun away from understanding Shia faith because they feel it's controversial, whereas what we need to do is sit together in a spirit of harmony. We are all here in the United Kingdom as UK citizens and respecting the law of the land, but at the same time trying to coexist not only between ourselves, but with the other wider community. So what we need to do is practice tolerance and be able to appreciate our differences and of course move towards respecting each other's beliefs and backgrounds if the Shias practice their emotion and their love towards the Ahl al-Bayt, then the Sunnis need to understand that this is the case. As long as this type of practicing does not hurt or in a way injure or become disrespectful to the figures that the Sunnis themselves honour and revere.
0: Sheikh Muhammad al-Hilli with a Shia perspective on the great divide between the two main branches of Islam. If you would like to hear a Sunni take on the same issues, look for The Great Divide, a Sunni Perspective with Cambridge scholar Tim Winter, available on our website, that's thingsunseen.co.uk. I'm Christina Pommert, and you've been listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people who have a faith and those who just feel there's more to life than the material world. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC.
1: And you can hear this programme again, and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.